0: Well, amen. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to abundant life. <laughs> it's great being with you all today. I bring you greetings from New York City, where I pastor church there. Amen. Amen. <laughs> pastor a church there called Trinity Grace Church. We just got there May 23rd. We landed. <clears throat> the previous 12 years, I was uh, pastoring a church in Memphis, Tennessee. Long story of how we got there, won't uh, inundate you with the details, but I literally wanted to go to the toughest urban center in the country to plant a multi-ethnic church. Um, And so I prayed and looked at the 2000 census, and Memphis it was. It's got a history of racism. Tim Keller says, when you walk into a city, you should know the idols and push against them. Matthew 16, Jesus says that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we went to this city where Dr. King was assassinated, where the founder of the KKK, uh, they have a park in honor for him. And um, we believed God with big things. 26 people, I was the only piece of chocolate in the room. And we just believed God and prayed and. um... Several years later, there were thousands of us coming 65% white, 35% African American. God was bringing a Revelation 5, 9 through 10 community like what I'm seeing here today to Memphis, Tennessee. So he just led me to a church in uh, in New York City, several thousand, um, mostly vanilla. Doesn't look, like, uh, doesn't look like the kingdom, doesn't look like New York City, and the board has asked me to lead the way in helping to see this church look like our future eternal reality. So that's what we're doing. Uh, when I lived here in California, amen, two of you clapping, that's nice. Um, when I lived here in California, I used to live in L.A. Bishop Kenneth Ulmer is my pastor. I was on staff uh, with him for, for some years. Went to Talbot School of Theology, got my master's degree there. And toward the end of my time, uh, I sat down in church. It's one of those old school churches where the pastors sit down on the pulpit... And uh, I sat down and looked out, and uh, there was this, in the words of Michael Jackson, PYT, sitting there. Some of y'all don't know that. I won't translate and interpret that for you. Uh, But that young lady turned out to be the woman I would end up marrying. And uh, she had just become a believer, and I decided to disciple her. And... um 16 years later, Corey and I just celebrated 16 years of marriage. We've got three kids. We've got three boys, Quentin, who's 14. Uh, he's definitely my most adaptable son, Miles, who's, uh, who's 12. He's uh, the introvert of the crew, but loves the Lord Jesus with all of his heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. And then there's my youngest son, uh, Jaden. He's the biggest of the lot. I call him my retirement plan kid loves basketball really good in fact i'll probably talk about that some in just a few moments but um spiritual gift is eating he loves loves to eat in fact i've already got it worked out hopefully he'll come to me in his 20s and he'll say uh dad i met this girl and how do you know she's the one i know mean, one will say to him son if you can look into her eyes the way you look into my refrigerator <laughs> she's the one she is she is the one if you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in James chapter 5. I do a little bit of traveling. I'm not doing a, a whole lot of um, uh, Sunday morning stuff uh, this year outside of my church. But when I do come to another body of believers, I don't know you all. You all don't know me. But we are bonded together, those of us who are followers of the way, we are bonded together by the blood of Jesus adopted into the family of God so even though I'll get on a plane this afternoon for the believer, it's never goodbye it's see you later we'll have an eternity to catch up and so my prayer is I just don't want to come and just dump information on you I, I want to come with the word and I want to come with a word in season God, what is it that you are saying to this body? Sound guy, real quick. If I walk in front of these speakers, will I get feedback? No, I'm good. Okay, I like to be close. So what is it that the Spirit of God wants to say? Now sometimes, um, you know, I I love what the Spirit gives me to preach to people, you know, because we can just jump around and shout. Notice a Hammond B3. Didn't see anybody playing it, but uh, I love that stuff. But sometimes the Spirit of God gives you a word that's not necessarily a popular word, but we preachers aren't in it for a popularity contest. I sensed as I prayed, God, what would you have this body of people to hear from you on October 11th, 2015? I sensed God dropping a word in my spirit for you from his word. It ain't a shouting sermon. But I want to talk about patience. Now if you've got it mastered, you can leave. (laughs) But I sense God wanting to talk to us individually and collectively this morning about patience. And to help us with that, I want you to hear the word of the Lord from the brother of Jesus. James chapter 5 beginning in verse 7. James begins by saying, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Here's that word again being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, here it is again, be patient. You think he's trying to make a point? Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, verse 9, he goes from our actions to our attitudes. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering, and here's that word again, patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, verse 11, we consider those blessed who remained, synonym for patience, steadfast, steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I do pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root, as my grandmama used to say, uh, leaving her AME church there in Roanoke, Virginia, put shoe leather on your word today. Help us to see, Lord God, not it is, uh, not only what it is you want to say to us, but how do we walk in that truth? Change us. And God, if you would so ordain, save someone's soul today. Draw some young prodigal or older seasoned prodigal who's been out in the far country back into the Father's embrace today. And then I pray for myself, your servant, Stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue those things you'd have us know, say, and do. Do it, Father God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. So one of the most frustrating things that can ever happen to an oyster is to have lodged within the confines of its shell a grain of sand. Most of the times, 99 times out of 100, this this oyster is able to locate that grain of sand and expel it from its premises. No problem, it moves on. But now there are some times when this oyster tries it may. It just can't get rid of that tiny grain of sand. It can't change its situation. can't change its circumstance. can't change its scenario. When this happens to this oyster, this tiny grain of sand, he, he, he can't get rid of it. He, he will find himself irritated, frustrated, exacerbated, and any other kind of sinful aided. At its wit's end now, the oyster does the only thing it can think to do, to provide itself with a semblance of relief. It, it, it can 't change its situation, but, but it will make the most of it. it. It locates that grain of sand, and it begins to coat it over and over and over again with a liquid substance that you and I know turns into something we pay top dollar for. A pearl. Did you know at the end of the day all a pearl is is the frustrated, is the fruit of a very frustrated oyster. If there was no frustration, there would be no pearl. If there was no grain of sand, there would be no precious pearl. God sent me by here today to just exhort you. He wants someone to know today, I'm trying to make a pearl out of your life. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, You are God's workmanship. Greek word, poiema, from which we get the English word, poem. You are His work of art. That God looks at you in the art gallery of heaven, and He rejoices. For you, in the words of the psalmist, in Psalm 139, you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made. I think of my own mother who grew up on the streets of Germantown, Philadelphia. Her own mother had had an abortion prior to my mom getting here. My mom was the product of a married man who had an affair with my grandmother, who was 18 at the time. And only for the sovereignty of God, my mom didn't end up on some table down the street here at Planned Parenthood. She was like, She's not here by accident. She's God's workmanship. It's poema. Your mom and dad may not have planned on you being here, but God in His sovereignty did. There are no accidents in the kingdom of God. And not only has He ordained for you to be here, but He saved you by His grace. And He, according to Ephesians chapter 1, adopts you into his family. I don't like the word adopted. It sounds like second-class citizenship until I had a conversation with my dad uh, several months ago. We're sitting down at the Cheesecake Factory in Atlanta, and my dad, every time I'm with him, I think every son needs to be able to quote to their, to their parents Proverbs thirteen twenty two. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. <laughs> and I always go, Dad, are you a good man? So we're sitting down, talking, and dad says to me, "Um, Son, you know, I've made some um, amendments and adjustments to the will. My eyes perk up. Do tell. He says, son, it's interesting. I sat down with my lawyer, and um, here I am in Georgia, and the, the lawyer looks at me and goes, Dr. Larissa, I see you've got four kids, and, and the three oldest, I see, are, are are biological. They're your biological kids. But your youngest, I see, is adopted. He says, before we go any further, the lawyer said, you need to understand, Georgia's state law stipulates that at any given moment, you can write out of your will your biological kids... But at no given moment, Georgia state law stipulates, can you ever write out from your will, your adopted kids, they are secure. It's interesting, Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul says that when you got saved, you got adopted into the family of God. And right on the heels of that, he says you were sealed with the precious Holy Spirit. That that means Security. Adoption in the kingdom of God is not second-class citizenship. It is first-rate security. But now, here's where I have a problem with the name it, claimant prosperity, people. Because following Jesus Christ does not mean everything is going to be easy. Following Jesus Christ, the footnote of the gospel tells me, actually in some ways becomes more difficult. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. In this world, the scriptures say, you and I will have trouble." But to God, there is no such thing as flippant or peripheral or wasted tribulation. That everything that happens in your life, in my life, happens for a reason. Everything that happens in the life of this church happens for a reason. And sometimes following Jesus Christ means that we will encounter life's grains of sand. But I've come by to tell you that you need to look at life's irritating, frustrating, exacerbating grains of sand as divine opportunities to let God transform you into a pearl. Amen. God says, "I'm up to something here, abundant life. I want to change you and transform you, that what you're going through it's not flippant. Someone here today, you're going through infertility struggles, grains of sand. Others of you, you're in a season of unemployment or underemployment. It's grains of sand. Others of you, you're going through marital difficulties or there's health crises. If I could just even let you into my own neighborhood there on the Upper West Side, come into my apartment, put your feet up on my coffee table, I, I can talk to you about, about health crises in our own home. Scares of breast cancer. Long sleepless nights. Grains of Sand. See, the problem is, most of us, we want the pearl, we just don't want the process. You don't get to God's delivery room of blessing without taking a pit stop in his waiting room called Patience. That's Joseph. We love Joseph. Second in command in Egypt. Yes, we want his seat. We just don't want the journey it took to get there. Betrayed by his brothers. Lied on by Potiphar's wife, forgotten about in jail. Moses, that legendary liberator and lawgiver, yes, we love Moses. Yes, we want his position. We just don't want the process. Forty years he fled from Egypt and was shepherding sheep on the backside of the dusty plains of Midian, wondering, God, have you forgotten about me, grains of sand? David, most scholars tell us that by the time he is anointed king in First Samuel chapter 16 till the time he actually ascends the throne in Second Samuel chapter 1, most scholars tell us 15 to 17 years go by spent on the run, spent feigning madness in places like Gath, spent crying out to God, wondering, God, where are you? I- I- can anybody relate? Amen. Grains of sand. Or it's the songwriter whose daughters died in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when their ship went down. He got on a ship, went to console his wife, and when he got to the place where his daughters died, he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well It is well with my soul. We don't get those words unless he had some grains of sand. So what do we do? What do we do as I'm waiting on the medical test to come back? What do we do as I'm tired of my season of singleness? By the way, the grass is not always greener. Some single folk want to be married, some married folk want to be single. Be content where you are. What do I do? Don't look at me, look at your text. James begins, James chapter 5, verse 7 he says, Here's what you do be patient. Now, as we look at James's epistle, one thing you need to understand, what differentiates his epistle from all the other uh, epistles or letters in the New Testament is scholars will tell you James has the highest concentration of what we call in Greek construction imperatives. The idea of an imperative simply means commands. James' com- James's epistle is one command after another command after another command. In fact, as the epistle opens up, he begins with a command, Count it all joy. Now, in this text, he begins with a command. He's not tweeting us sage wisdom to to contemplate. He's not giving us something to think about. He's grabbing us by the lapel, so to speak, looking us eyeball to eyeball. He says, Listen, be patient. I'm not advising. I'm not counseling. I am saying, Be patient. What does this mean? That phrase, be patient, in the Greek, it's one word in the Greek. It's a compound word. Here it is. It is the word macrothumos. Thumos is from that word that we get the English word thermometer from. It's something that measures heat. It's the idea of anger. Macro means to be long. So literally, macrothumos means to be long towards anger patience implies that i am in a situation i do not like it was d.a. carson in his wonderful book scandalous this foremost theologian he says the reason why most christians don't pray for patience is because we're smart enough to know that implicit in the prayer is a request for god to put me in something i don't like I was walking Central Park the other day and I'm praying through the Beatitudes. Lord, I I want these kingdom traits in my own life. Within the span of 24 hours, second time happened yesterday on the flight here, two people spill coffee all over me. And as soon as it happens, I hear God saying, be merciful. (laughs) Be careful what you pray for. But the idea of patience means I'm in a situation in which I've got one nerve left. And if something else happens, I'm going to go off on somebody up in here, up in here. I'm going to go crazy. If that kid doesn't keep his mouth shut, if that thing doesn't happen, I'm going to lose. Ever been there? And James says... Be patient. I'm going to be with a friend of mine here in a couple of, um, actually a little over a week, Celebrate his 40th uh, birthday. And he called me up a couple months ago, and I could just hear it in his voice as soon as he called me. Was just He called me, and we're talking, going, what's going on here? He goes, man, my, my mom, they just found she's got breast cancer. She's got to have a double mastectomy. It's pretty radical. On top of that, they found some tumors wrapped around his spine. And if that wasn't enough, his house, which was on the market down in Southern California, at the 11th hour, the buyer pulled out. And I could hear it in his voice. I can't take anything else. Ever been there? What do we do? James goes on to say, Be patient, therefore, brothers. I love it. Look at it with me, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Here it is. Until. I love it. The idea of the word until implies that whatever it is you're going through will not last forever. That your situation has an expiration date on it. Now, I am not saying your situation will end the way you want it to end, but all I'm saying is it will end. C.S. Lewis says there's only two places in the world where you will not need patience. Hell, because there are no exit signs. Heaven, because there is no adversity. But everything in between, you will need patience, but everything in between has an until, because everything in between is temporary. Your situation will end. So what do I do? He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now he calls our attention to the farmer. What is patience? Patience. Is patience kind of passive resignation where I cross my arms and say, Okay, God, do something. I'm waiting on you. That is not patience. He calls our attention to the farmer because what the farmer teaches us is patience is not passive resignation. Instead, it is active waiting. The farmer does not go to his field and look at the field and go, God, send the crops No, what the farmer does is he labors and he plows and he cultivates and he plants seeds and he does everything he can knowing that unless God sends the rain, he labors in vain. And yet he also knows that if God sends the rain and he has not labored, no fruit will come out of that field. He understands it is active waiting. It is a partnership. So that patience is not me saying, I'm just going to wait on God to show up and to show off. No, patience says, do all that you can do in the situation you're in, knowing that you are waiting on God to send the rain. It says, be patient, therefore, brothers. This is Paul. Much of Paul's letters are written from prisons. We call them the prison epistles. This is interesting. He's in a situation he can't change. So what does he do in these prisons? Does he just sit there going, okay, God, bust me out of here. Maybe, uh, maybe like you, do like you did with uh, me and Silas in Philippians chapter 16. Send an earthquake. Do something. Send an angel to show up. Get us out of here. No, no, he doesn't do that. While in jail, what does he do? He says, can I have some pen and a piece of paper? And he writes, and he writes, and he writes letters to churches. And you read these letters What does he say in all of them? I've been praying for you. So that here he is in a situation he cannot change, and he writes and he prays and he writes and he prays. But not only that, in Philippians chapter 1, he says, Philippians, don't worry about me, because since being in jail, the whole praetorian guard has come to Christ. It's interesting. Paul woke up one day and he said, man, look, these guys are chained to me, which means they're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. So he turns to his right and says, Jesus, 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 to his left and says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the gospel goes forth, not passive resignation. He says, I might not be able to change my situation, but I'm going to make the most of it. That's patience. Now from here, he says something interesting. Look at the text. Right on the heels of this, he says, Now let's talk about our attitudes. Do not grumble. Another imperative. Patience is not just physical. I'm fitting to come to somebody's neighborhood. You can be patient in your body, but if you're impatient in your spirit, that's not patience. He he says, don't grumble. James is writing to the Jewish diaspora. He's writing to Jews who have been scattered abroad. And and this idea of grumble takes these Jews back to the Exodus event, where a six-week journey turned into a 40-week debacle because they murmured and they grumbled and they complained against God. They complained about everything. And James uses this imagery of grumbling and complaining. And he says, when you find yourself in a situation you don't like, don't grumble. You should really have gratitude. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling today preaching on the West Coast because my, my dirty birds, my falcons are playing right now. In fact, would you just grab your neighbor's hands and let's just... Let's just pray for them right now. They're 4-0, which is a little different from the 49ers and the, and the Raiders. I'm sorry about that. Sorry. Um, but anyways, so, so as a Falcons fan, if you know anything about the NFL, if you know anything about the Falcons, you, you know I'm acquainted with patience. Uh, I, I, I know a little bit about suffering. Um, the highlight for me as a Falcons fan was 1998. I was down the road in uh, Pasadena at a church called Lake Avenue, serving there at the time. And uh, I, I remember we, we made it to the NFC championship game against the Minnesota Vikings. And no one, no one gave us a shot. But I got up, gave the benediction at Lake Avenue, said, God bless my dirty birds. And wouldn't you know it, we won. <laughs> Bible says James would go on to say the prayers of the righteous. <laughs> Availeth much. It's amazing. We won, so I'm talking a lot of trash. We're going to Super Bowl. We're going to play against the Broncos, man. And I'm, you know, I'm just kind of talking a lot of trash. We're going to win, and um, we lose. Uh, must have been sin in my life that week. Not quite sure, but uh, <laughs> but that's okay because the next year, 1999, that's going to be our year. And I'm talking a lot of trash. And um, I remember Monday night football game. I'm at uh, BJ's on Huntington uh, Avenue there in there in Monrovia and uh, watch our star. Uh, running back, Jamal Anderson, plant, blow out his knee, end of our season, man. And people from the church are calling my house, people I don't even know. Call, Pastor, what happened to your dirty birds? I mean, just talk a trash. Like, like, I want to take you before the church and let's have your know, church discipline exercised on you speaking to me that way. But so it, it was a rough year in 1999. Uh, I, I, here I am down in the dumps. Frustrated with the Atlanta Falcons. We're getting beat. We're just getting hammered. I am down in the dumps. I'm grumbling. I'm complaining. I don't have any sense of joy. And then I had a brilliant idea. In 1999, I decided, while we're having this awful year to call NFL Films and ask for the 1998 highlight clip of the Atlanta Falcons. So that in 1999, when I'm down in the dumps, Turning the game off frustrated with 14 minutes and 12 seconds left to go in the first quarter. (laughs) I'm frustrated in 1999, but in order to give give myself some joy, I would pop in that VHS cassette. VHS, y'all... Okay, y'all, y'all flowing with me? I would pop in that VHS cassette of the 1998 Falcons and would reflect on the past to give me some joy in the present. All I'm trying to say is, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you're struggling in your present and you're down in the dumps, struggling with where to find joy, you ought to have some nothing but Jesus highlights. You ought to be able to reflect back on the goodness of Jesus and His grace in your life. Can I give you one? My son Miles has a rare blood disease. Said he'll never get over it. Was diagnosed with it five years ago. And every single week we had to go to St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And the real gift of that is if you live in Memphis, they'll take you. They'll take your kid. So it's difficult to get into that hospital if you don't live there. So we prayed. He had something called hyper eosinophil syndrome. Could be a precursor to cancer. And doctors said, you will never get rid of it. And we're taking him over and over again. We're praying all the time. And I'm praying Isaiah 53, 4, and 5. over. He was wounded for our transgressions and by his stripes we're healed. And we're praying and we're praying five-year journey. And then New York calls us. And we feel called to go. December, they make the official offer just this past December, and then my wife and I are going. Well, what about our son's care? His next appointment, January sixteenth. The doctor said we can't explain it, but your son's blood disease is completely gone. It is healed. It's the provision of God. It's not coincidence. That same God moves, and yet for five years, he stuck us in his waiting room. Don't judge the goodness of God based on your limited sight. He's up to something. He may not come when you want him to, my grandmama used to say, but he's always on time. Let's round third and head for home. What do I do when I'm struggling with patience? James says in our text, you need some inspiration for patience. Look to the prophets. Don't look to your best friends. He says, if you're struggling with patience, look to the prophets. My youngest son is a basketball, and he's he's passionate about it. It's kind of cool to watch. I, I know every dad's supposed to say this, but my son's really good. Like, he's 10 years old, and his league last year averaged 20 points a game. NBA players like Mike Miller wanted him on his AAU team. Kid's really, really good. If you were to walk into his bedroom, you would notice two things. One, you would notice on the wall right by his bed, he's, he's mapped out the top five Division One colleges he wants to play for. And the top ten NBA teams he wants to be drafted by. Golden State made it, by the way. <laughs> He's also designed his first NBA shoe. Amazing. I'm encouraging all of that uh, and teaching him about tithing at the same time. But uh, so, but across the way from his bed are posters, posters of great NBA players: LeBron James, Kobe Bryant. Steph Curry. If you walk into my son's room at times, there's been times I've seen him on his bed staring at the posters, getting inspired. James says when it comes to the faith, if you're struggling with patience, about to lose your mind, he says you've got some posters. They're called the prophets. What poster is Ezekiel? Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I'm trying to teach my people the patience I have with them, but they're not getting it. So I need to use you, Ezekiel, as a visual demonstration. I want you to strip down, take off all your clothes except for your loincloth, and lay on your side for 390 days. Don't move. Patience. Here's another poster. Hosea. God says to Hosea, my people aren't getting it. They're not getting the fact that I've been faithful to to them and patient with them. And yet here I am having made a marriage covenant with them, and they're cheating on me by going after other idols all the time. So here's what I want you to do, Hosea. I want you to go to the other side of town and marry this girl. She's going to cheat on you and leave you, and when she does, don't let her go. Get her back, because that's what I do with my people, and that's what I do with you, and that's what I do with my children. When you are faithless, I'm faithful. Patience. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior... If you come to know him, that relationship is not quid pro, quid pro. Uh, it, it, is, it is not status quo. It, 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 is, it is not transactional. It is not based on your performance. You cannot perform enough for him. In fact, it is filled with his mercy and filled with his grace. Patience. Then there's the Michael Jordan of patience. He says in our text, look at Job. Hmm. Job. If you thought 2008 was rough, had nothing on the economic downturn of Job 1. He loses everything. Goes to a funeral with 10 caskets, each casket holding one of his kids. He's covered from head to toe with boils and his wife is chirping in his ear. Curse God and die. And yet he has the nerve to say, I love it. In Job chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. Wow. He didn't feel like saying that. He probably felt discouraged and depressed and felt burnt out. And yet he says, in spite of how he felt, I know, my Redeemer lives. If you get nothing else, I say, get this. When going through life's trying situations and circumstances, always let what you know trump how you feel. (laughs) Look to them. Finally, he ends by saying, Verse 11, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying what you're going through is not some off-the-rack, one-size-fits-all trial. It is tailor-made, custom-made for you. That God will not put more on you than you can bear. That when you feel overwhelmed, there is the way of escape. That there is a purpose to the waiting. There is a purpose to the trial. He's up to something in your life. He's doing something. When I was a little boy, my mom had an annoying hobby. It was a hobby called um, cross-stitching. Cross-stitching Involves taking a piece of cloth and and weaving in threads, but I called it annoying because I I remember being a little boy Sitting at her feet while she would do it on the sofa And I called it annoying because from my perspective from the bottom up all I saw was dangling threads Chaos No rhythm No rhyme No reason I remember one day saying to my mama, 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 what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. It seems to be chaos. I'll never forget. Mama said, son, sit on my lap. And when I sat on mama's lap, I I now saw things no longer from the bottom up, but from the top down. And when I saw it from mama's perspective, she immediately went from being this deranged person who had lost it all, in my opinion, to being a mastermind, a genius. For I saw a beautiful pattern. The problem with life, friends, is one of perspective. We see things from the bottom up. Sometimes life has no rhyme or reason. It seems chaotic. It seems as if God has lost his mind. But God is saying, sit on my lap today. See things from my perspective. For if you saw them from his perspective, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you saw it from his perspective, you would see that he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. There is no wasted trial. God wants to make a pearl out of your life. Will you be patient enough To let him start in you what he began. James says, be patient. Will you pray with me?